There's something about horror that gets under your skin, that keeps you up at night, afraid to turn off the lights. You can't sleep, but that won't stop the nightmares from following you into the waking world. <sighs> Audio recording by Travis Tippins, head podcaster at the Fantasy Inn. I thought I could simply share my love for fantasy, but I found something darker. This week's statement is from Jonathan Sims, writer of the Magnus Archives podcast and author of 13 Stories, a standalone horror novel from Galanx. Johnny and I discuss how horror writers evoke fear, how societal fears change over time, and his future career in horror. He shares quite a few secrets of his trade, but some secrets are better left hidden. Statement begins. Welcome to the Fantasy Inn, Johnny. It is such a privilege to have you on the podcast. It's lovely to be here. Thank you for inviting me. And I'll admit that I pretty much only knew of your work on the Magnus Archives before we set up this chat, but I learned that you also used to be a singer in a steampunk space pirate band. Uh, what can you tell us about that? Um, yeah. <laughs> um, I think, like... Steampunk is a is a weird one because I don't think it's a label we ever particularly courted, but because we dressed kind of like weird, uh, basically because uh, me and the guitarist Tim were very into our like leather coats, and uh, I I decided to go with the uh, too many belts costume style. Uh, it very much had kind of a steampunky vibe, but the music itself was. It was sort of, we called ourselves storytelling uh, sci-fi cabaret. Uh, and it was, I mean, fundamentally, it was just a bit of massive self-indulgent fun for a bunch of folk just coming out of uni. We'd essentially take old uh, sort of folk songs and fairy tales and just move them into space and weave these sort of uh, slightly grander narratives uh, out of them. Uh, a lot of it, to be honest, was because at the beginning we couldn't, really play our instruments all that well um so old folk standards uh, were very handy uh, for that and yeah it was uh, we i think we were going about i mean by the end we were going technically 10 years when we finally finished the project this this january but uh sort of the last four or five years uh we were all kind of spread to the four winds yeah it's one of those ones which is you know those projects you look back on and you're like oh i was i had so much energy back then um and it was uh, it was very like rough and ready but a lot of fun got a lot of fun memories from that and it did indeed sort of lead to uh magnus which like i, I kind of think of magnus as my first like properly big published project and that came out of uh, Alex, the director at Rusty Quill, uh, actually seeing a Mechanisms gig up at the Edinburgh Fringe the third year we were up there, I think. That's always fascinating to me. I remember hearing about that from one of like the behind-the-scenes episodes on the Magnus Archives podcast. It just blows my mind that you can show up to, I guess that Alex can show up to a show with that kind of crazy energy and think, you know, maybe like a horror anthology podcaster right there. Well, it wasn't quite... Um quite as uh a to b what uh he actually approached the the band as a whole uh with a sort of a general offer and said oh, i'm starting a, a podcast company uh and you guys seem really cool do you want to do something with us uh this was still when rusty cool was only just starting out i think rusty cool gaming had been going a, a month or two um and he was very much like looking for new shows and we had like a big talk amongst ourselves and we ultimately came to the conclusion that given it took us about a year to write eight songs at that point we weren't able to do anything on a podcast schedule but uh i i got talking to alex through this and at the time i was working uh just a, a very well i want to say soul destroying but actually there was a certain piece to it a night shift job anyway the sort of thing that takes about 30 to 40 percent of your actual concentration so i was listening to a lot of podcasts and i'd found uh, an old radio archive of nightfall and lights out and all these old horror radio shows it was just a, a concept that really appealed to me 
and so I approached Alex and um, we, we had a, a meeting in uh, a coffee shop in Edinburgh and uh, I sort of pitched him this show and uh, he said, yeah, okay. And then we got working on it. And I mean, I, I guess has like the whole horror and scary stories thing been something that you've been passionate about for a while or is that kind of just, you know, spur of the moment you were feeling like horror? It's horror is, I think, a genre that's always been very close to my heart. Uh, I don't think that I really thought of my career path as like a horror writer specifically until um, I got started on the Magnus Archives and then it sort of, it really just kind of clicked into place. But I've certainly always uh, had a, a fascination with the genre and it's always felt, I know, it's always felt like my genre, you know? Yeah, I get that. That's kind of what like fantasy would be for me. Do you have like a particular story that you remember like really making you fall in love with horror, like a spooky story or a ghost story or something? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's it, it to a certain degree it's in the name uh, because the the horror story that always stuck with me, I think, the most was M.R. James' uh, Count Magnus, just because I I remember reading it as a sort of late child, early teen, and it just absolutely. I think it was one of the first times I, I read a horror story that, or a ghost story that properly shook me. And yeah, that that's, I would say that's the story that stayed with me the longest. And I mean, it's like I said, it's the source of the podcast name. It's always interesting to kind of see that clear progression there. Well, as a horror writer now, since that kind of does feel like the career path that you're on, I'm sure you've answered this a million times, but what scares you? I mean, a lot of things, to be honest. I, I, am to a certain degree of the opinion well you know the old writing advice write what you know i feel like for horror a lot of it comes down to write what you fear um if you're not to some degree afraid of something then i think it's difficult for the the fear that you are putting into your text to come out properly because you're not necessarily attuned to what is actually scary about what you're writing unless to a certain degree it scares you yourself um, and one of the sort of skills I've been gradually trying to develop over the course of the Magnus Archives and the course of writing is to be able to turn my brain to be scared of almost anything. Does that make sense? The idea of like you look at something and then you sort of almost kind of Rubik's Cube your mind to see what to see if you can get it to a state where it is it it does scare you, where there is something about it that locks into that part of your mind that, uh, that that is afraid and then you can focus in and really drill down and say okay well what is what is that fear and then then you write that i think my biggest fear is probably uh I've, and i've said it before it's probably death uh just because it's that huge all-encompassing inevitable thing um but to a certain degree uh, I've, i mean i've got loads yeah, and I mean, that that's fascinating, too, because it does make sense to a certain extent. I feel like just about any single thing could be scary in the right context for the right person. And part of being a horror writer seems to be figuring out how to reverse engineer that somewhat. Yeah, I think that I think that's very much the case. Uh, often I find that if I need inspiration, like you, you go for a walk, you go somewhere new, and you sort of start to... I find that there are ways you can sharpen your perception in, in along different sort of axes. I've heard a lot of writers talk about it in terms uh, with people, uh, like when they people watch, for instance, you know, you, you start to observe people and you sort of move them around in your mind and you sort of draw conclusions and like you sort of play with the relationships you see in the world. Uh, and I find it's very similar with horror. You sort of, there's a way of moving through and looking at the world where you train yourself to spot the things, spot the shadows, essentially. You, you, you spot the, the closed doors that look slightly incongruous, slightly different to those around them. Uh, you, you are attuned to the one lit window uh, with the slightly odd-coloured light in the old warehouse. And when you get to a stage where you can spot those things, you can then draw them out. And yeah, suddenly looking at a 
looking at a tower block, you're not just seeing the tower block, you're seeing yeah, you're seeing the creature crawling up the outside. And a lot of it is you consume a lot of uh, media, uh, both horror and otherwise, to give you that fodder to to layer onto the world as you see it. That does seem to kind of be one of the most universal pieces of advice that I get from people is that, you know, media in, creativity out somewhat, right? You kind of got to refill that creative well at some point. But also I think it's important to refill it from places that aren't just the genre you're working with. Mm, uh, yes. Like, I think it's very important to, and certainly not the the same well, because fundamentally, if everyone in a genre is just consuming the same stuff, it can become insular, it can become stagnant. Yeah, and I mean, that's obviously the last thing, I think, as creators and consumers of any, any type of story, really, that we would want. Um, I guess... I am also curious about your relationship with fear. I mean, fear is like this somewhat instinctual thing that's programmed into us to help us recognize and deal with danger and, you know, survive. Uh, and yet horror lovers seek it out. And a writer like yourself actively tries to instill that fear in their readers. I think there's a few aspects to it. Uh, I think at the basic level, uh, it's the same principle as a roller coaster. You know, uh, you know, falling from a great height uh, is something that uh, traditionally it causes an adrenaline rush, mainly because your body assumes you're going to die. But within a controlled environment, that rea- that instinctive reaction can be channeled in a very in a way that, it, that a lot of people find very entertaining. And I think at a, at a basic level. That is true for horror. It's taking these uh, instinctive uh, reactions and sort of channeling them in entertaining or comparatively harmless ways. I think there are other levels. There are slightly deeper levels that get into sort of the literary function of horror. Um, And I don't necessarily mean that just in terms of the written word, but uh, in terms of how horror fiction is able to deal with trauma uh, specifically and a lot of the a lot of the darker topics um, of the world and I'm I'm a I'm a big believer in uh, sort of content warnings and trigger warnings to allow people to consciously choose what they do and don't consume and what they do and don't want to explore but I think that horror does have a unique place in being able to go being able to go deeper in a lot of the yeah a lot of the darker aspects of society and a lot of the darker aspects of you know the human existence to you know to waffle pretentious um, <laughs> and uh, yeah like I've I've certainly found it it uh, it it's a really powerful way for me to explore some of the aspects of of my own life and I think that function of it is something that as writers and readers you do need to be careful of um, because what can be validating or exploratory to one person can be re-traumatizing to another uh, and so that I think is something to be aware of in writing and and aware of in reading like when you're when you're engaging with uh, with, with horror um, I also think that horror is horror's got some great metaphors you know when you're looking at even when you're not looking at specifically uh, dark or traumatic subject matter um, fears are born of the society in which they exist which means that examining those fears is a very good way of reflecting back and examining the society that has generated them you know it's it's a it's an old truism that monsters are metaphors but the same monster can be a different metaphor in a different society or a different time. It's very interesting to me how the vampire as a metaphor has evolved with the society. Uh, like since, I mean, since Polidori's The Vampire, the vampire has been very much a, um, uh, a metaphor for sex uh, to one degree or another. At the beginning, it's this idea of sex mixed with disease or otherness, um, in the sense of like Dracula being this strange foreign noble, and 
in the modern era, vampires are still generally a metaphor for sex, but because our own relationship with sex as a society has matured and changed, and in some ways for the better, in some ways not so much. But you look at things like Anne Rice or Twilight, and while the sex metaphor remains very much present, uh, the interpretation of it is, I don't know, more confused to a certain degree, less overtly hostile. Yeah, absolutely. Those uh, are some very good points. Although I am a little concerned if the vampires in the Magnus Archive are supposed to be a metaphor for sex. Oh, no, uh, that was very much me being <laughs> like, oh, what? That, that, that was sometimes I will set myself uh, a challenge um, with uh, a Magnus episode. And often it's like, hey, here's a, here's a thing. Can I make it scary in a new way? So, like, I've I've done an episode with uh, with a sort of a mummy. Uh, I've done episodes with vampires, and like, I like this idea of um, I, I did an episode with with zombies, sort of, and like to a certain degree, it's a bit self indulgent. Oh yes, I'll do vampires, but I'll do them differently. But it's uh, to a certain degree, it was like, okay, I want to do vampires, but I want to make them scary and so for me it was less uh less leaning to the sex metaphor and more the uh, the other the flip side the idea of like the the parasite the hunter the um almost the the leech or, or tick idea of these things that lurk within society the same way a leech might lurk within uh, a swamp uh, and you can't necessarily see them or perceive them until they latch onto you yeah, that's no, that's definitely a good way, I think, of thinking about those vampires. Um, and definitely a lot more frightening, at least for me. Um, on the note of the Magnus Archives, uh, one thing that definitely stands out for me is that while here you are Johnny Sims, uh, in the Magnus Archives, you play Jonathan Sims. Uh, so interesting to sort yeah. of have the same name. Uh, yeah, it was, uh, I, I would describe that as a mistake, broadly speaking. <laughs> Uh, and it's it, it very much came out of the, the initial show that I pitched to Alex was much more anthology uh, anthology style with this figure of the archivist of uh, John Sims being more of a, a, a presenter curator sort of figure halfway between the the crypt keeper or um, uh, Jordan Peele uh, in the new Twilight Zone but as it developed as it evolved uh, it became this sort of much more sprawling metaplot uh, and at no point did i say actually you know what we should we should probably just change the name and obviously as the series has gone on i've regretted it more and more uh, because it's made i mean i don't think it's ever led to like well i think it's led to some confusion on the fan end uh, with some people thinking that either i am not real or um, I, th I, th I saw one or two things where uh, the books recently came out uh, and so some people were like, what? So the fictional character's written a book or is it into the Magnus <laughs> Archives thing? Or uh, And it's like, no, that, that, is, that is my name. I just, I, I made a mistake. <laughs> I mean, it seems like you lean into it a little bit with, I think your Twitter handle is like the eponymous Johnny. Yeah. Yeah, I did. Sorry, I'd completely forgotten that was my Twitter. You know how after a while you, you've had a, a Twitter handle so long you don't really see it anymore. But uh, yes, you're 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 quite right. But no, it's it's. I think I have learned. I've learned to in, to enjoy. It. At first, it was fun when it was like because season one, the archivist was a, was a bit more of a self insert. I think just like me channeling all the kind of dickhead bits of my own nature, and then sort of seasons two to four, there was that. There was like, oh, I can't believe. I can't believe I've, I've this is I have made a mistake, and by now I'm very much like <laughs> back in the you know what this is this is a lot of fun especially because like by season five uh, the the archivist has deviated so wildly from uh, anything that might remotely be connected to me as a person that uh, it, it it feels fun again. Yeah, well, fantastic. Um, Say so otherwise, you kind of got your sort of meta horror story going on there where your fans no longer can tell the difference between the real you and the fake you. Yeah, where do I end and the podcast begins? I mean, to be fair, there are plenty of people who've never seen my face and have only ever heard my voice. So I think that's a much more like I feel like anyone who's actually seen my face is like, oh, no, that's that's not that's not the archivist. 
um, just because, like, I mean, in my mind, my face and my voice match up perfectly because you know I'm I'm used to it. But uh, I don't think I've ever seen anyone like draw fan out of the archivist who have no idea what I look like, and that fan art look even remotely like me. So apparently, my my voice is radically different to my face. Yeah, although I will say, like, even now, I, I can hear, like, the archivist in your voice, although you do kind of put on, like, an affectation as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, much stronger in, in season... It's weird. Like, it's... The affectation is strongest in season one, uh, but at the same time, I think by season five, the voice is actually... Even though it's less affected, it's still more different to mine, just because I've, it, it has become a character voice much more and stopped being so much a um, an affectation on my own voice. That makes sense, and that kind of parallels nicely with how the character diverged from you. Um, I guess for our listeners who have never heard you as the archivist, could you give us just like a quick example of the archivist voice? Yes, absolutely. Uh, it's deeper, a bit more clipped, uh, broadly speaking, uh, it's less patient. Um, slightly more erudite in a lot of ways, but uh, still ultimately quite awkward. Uh, that's yeah, that's a highly entertaining description of it. Um, it's interesting to hear it broken down like that. But anyways, uh, we have you here uh, about your new and exciting yes. thing. Uh, so the reason we're talking today is your debut novel, Thirteen Stories, out now from Galanx. Uh, what can you tell us about the book? Uh, it's really good. You should, you should buy it. It's scary. Um, yeah, so the idea is there is a new sort of high-rise tower block in Whitechapel, in, in Tower Hamlets in London, called Banyan Court, which has been constructed by uh, a very reclusive billionaire by the name of Tobias Fell. And most of it is this shining, glittery residence for the very wealthy. Uh, but there is, uh, because... Uh, Legitimately, that there are planning restrictions uh, in London that if you're creating sort of effectively luxury apartments, you also need to have a certain portion of it parceled out for, in inverted commas, low-income residents, affordable housing. Uh, the trouble is that uh, because of 10-plus years of Tory government, there aren't actually the protections involved that actually make that work so often the affordable housing will either will a not actually be in any way affordable and b be constructed to like a much lower standard uh, than the rest of the building and so this uh this idea uh, comes through in in 13 stories the idea of there's this essentially the back of banyan court which is almost a sort of uh, uh not quite a slum but like a much lower quality building um where Generally, the poorer residents, like they are completely separate, separated from this shiny, uh, high-end front of the building. And over the course of the book, there are thirteen stories because it's a it's a very it's a very very clever title. Although I can't actually take any any uh, credit for it. That was that was my editor Rachel who was like, "This this is what I was thinking for the title. Let me know if you've got a better one." And I was like, "There I, there is no better title than that. That is an amazing title." But each chapter follows uh, either one of the residents or someone heavily connected to Banyan Court uh, as they each experience their own uh, haunting, effectively, which leads up to the final chapter, which is a dinner party hosted by Tobias Fell, the billionaire. And, uh, well, I mean, I was going to say spoilers, he ends up dead, but that is actually like one of the first lines in the book so i think that's that on the much. back of the book as yeah, well <laughs> it's, not, it's not that much of a spoiler uh so it's very much um it's in many ways kind of a, a classic haunted house anthology but very much tied together all the stories kind of weave in and out of each other uh and come to this uh, singular singular climax this conclusion and yeah the same way i, th I, I feel like a lot of the old ghost stories dived into like the social aspects of, of their time. Uh, this one is very much me trying to wrestle with uh, a lot of the real-life social horror that exists out in the world. 
Yeah, that definitely was something that kind of jumped out immediately to me about 13 Stories, uh, especially compared to, say, the Magnus Archives. There's less of this universal horror that could apply to anyone and more of like this very specific social horror. So why that change and why do you think horror is such an effective way to explore this? I think it's a change in me as a, as a writer that is gradually come away if you I mean if you, if you listen like as as you get further and further into the magnus archives i think the change a, a similar sort of change starts to occur there and certainly season five i think has a lot of social and political metaphor as part of the, the stories it sort of does move away from some of the more primal universal fears of the of the earlier seasons uh and 13 stories, I think, uh, I mean, to a certain degree, it was very much conceived as such. The initial sort of seed of the idea that I was given by glance, the the idea of, of this divided tower block. I mean, the politics and the social commentary are very much baked into the foundation, uh, as it were, of that. But also, I find that, yeah, I, I think that there is a lot to be done and a lot of good horror in examining these primal, more universal fears. But as I've, I think, grown as a writer, I have become more and more fascinated with, yeah, how horror and ghosts and monsters work as metaphor that laces through society. And yeah, I mean, I mentioned it uh, a bit earlier, but uh, in the same way that, you know, your very old folklore has this reflection of the the values and the society in which it, it grows. I think that modern horror fiction, in a lot of ways, kind of continues this tradition. Uh, and you can see it in uh, like a lot of specifically online horror storytelling as well, has echoes and mimics the structure and development of uh, old-fashioned folklore. Uh, I mean, I, I know that there's uh, more than one sort of academic folklore society that's had lectures and discussions on slender man for instance because that is you know an internet horror story that has grown out as folklore so i think there is that legacy and that parallel between uh, what a society fundamentally what a society fears is to me one of the most interesting and telling things about it and yeah there, there's i think there's there's a lot to be explored there yeah, I mean, that's a good point, is even uh, what fears you choose to examine kind of can be a social critique in and of itself, even outside of how you apply that towards social commentary. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, a lot of the, uh, like, especially because I, 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 I like to work not so much in 13 Stories, but certainly in Magnus, I, I, I feel I've been working in uh, sort of a, a space that could be called Cosmic Horror. And Cosmic Horror, as originally developed by Lovecraft, very much, like, grows out of these explicitly racist fears. This idea of the other as something to be afraid of is baked into the very fabric of the genre. And it's something that, I, that I've, to one degree, with, you know, with arguable success, uh, I, I've worked to try and disentangle, I think, from the sort of cosmic horror that I write. But in many ways, I think it's easier to write quite conservative horror because then you just need to take what society is afraid of and recreate it without any sort of examination or um, deconstruction or real engagement, you know? I've seen a lot of horror that sort of simply reproduces narratives centered around fear of uh, fear of the other, fear of the mentally ill, fear of immigrant or immigration, you know, and, and all these are very... So I think it's, it's very easy to write conservative horror simply by vomiting society's fears back at it but i think that there is a really rich space to actually engage with these fears and examine them and i mean fundamentally toss out the ones that are garbage and double down on the ones that are interesting and i think even to a certain extent you could say that on the more conservative horror and anything that threatens the status quo can be somewhat horrifying but then in kind of what I'm seeing more from horror these days is the status quo itself is rather horrifying. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I think it's one of those things where, like, there's always been horror out there that has engaged with that. Clive Barker, for instance, uh, has always, I think, very much pushed the, like, st 
status quo as as horror uh you look at something like the the midnight meat train which uh, not the the film which i love the film it is garbage uh <laughs> vinnie jones kills a lot of people with a meat hammer uh but um the original uh the original short story is sort of very much engaging with like the city as monster the city as this like the status quo of a city being maintained by the like the chewing up and destruction and digestion of human lives so i I think this sort of horror has always been there if you went looking for it but certainly in the last five ten years i think it's come much more to the foreground uh and i to a certain degree i think it's because capitalism's been getting worse and a lot more people are starting to be like, oh, wait, actually, this is, this, is, this is kind of fucked up. Yep. Thankfully, it's taken people long enough. So I guess kind of more on the mechanical end of writing, how exactly as a writer of scary stories do you make something scary? Because I know like, just knowing what people fear doesn't seem like it's enough to actually evoke that emotion. Like I could say there's a man with a knife or a giant spider appeared or the lights went out. But that by itself is not going to make a reader want to read or listen with the lights on. Yeah, I mean, I, to a certain to a certain degree, uh, you know, you just you put a ghost in it. You know, just put just put a ghost in there, and that's that'll that'll do it. <laughs> um, that is fair. You know, I, I I think the two aspects of horror for me that make it effective are the image, like because to a certain degree, you say, "Oh, there's a man with a knife." It's not particularly scary. But uh, there are images that, I mean, there are images that are, that are, that are, that are scary, that like, however crudely or uh, inaccurately described, are still going to unsettle. Uh, you know, the, like, an inside-out man is like three words, but as an image, it's still quite effective. And so I think half of it is finding those images, finding those ideas that do unsettle at quite a deep level. Uh, and the other is the the other half is almost entirely technical. To be honest, it's like I, I think of it. Uh, I've, I've said this a few times, but I think of it in many ways more like music than than like writing, because so much of it is to do with the rhythm. Uh, so much of it is is to do with uh, like the pacing. And like building that sense of dread and dropping it, and there, there's various aspects to that as well. Like, yeah, you, you've you've got the the creepy when things are creepy. To me, is like a, a function of category mismatch, where you expect the world to function in a specific way, and then it functions in a different way. But, you know, a, a hand closing backwards, for instance, is creepy because that's. Uh, you know, uh, a man who opens his mouth and there's an eyeball in there. Again, creepy because that's not what's expected. And so your brain has this immediate reaction of like almost a, an existential recoil. You've also got threat because like fundamentally, a man with a knife isn't scary. A man with a knife, if you are invested in the protagonist not getting stabbed, it's a bit more scary. Uh, so there's there's that direct threat aspect. There's disgust, which is you know if you describe some gross stuff, people get grossed out, and that's like it's you got to be you got to earn disgust, I think. Um, but it's it's definitely a, it's definitely a useful tool. And there's also dread, which is not an actual thing. It's the quiet promise of threat or the creepy or the the the, um, the disgust uh, on the horizon and so I think a lot of it is just getting a hang of the balance mastering the rhythm and figuring out what balance and what rhythm works for each specific fear that you're engaging with uh, and I think when you're talking about specific social economic and environmental fears I tend to start with the image uh, and sort of go from there uh, you know the idea of like you know pollution for instance is uh, that's a pretty abstract environmental fear so you have a think about what's a, a strong horror metaphor image for it and you can work from there so in 13 stories it's the idea of this uh, this this growing stain on a wall 
that it's in kind of a Junji Ito style mania the um, the the protagonist becomes more and more obsessed with um in the Magnus archives I've used uh, images like fields of human statues made of discarded plastic or bottles or concrete to be fair, I, I should give full credit to uh, the uh, Annihilation for, like, I'll be honest, largely stealing that particular image. Um, but <laughs> yeah, a lot of it is you isolate that core image and you work from there. Yeah. And on the note of core images and earning disgust, I can't say that there's like a one to one causal effect here. But when I started listening to the Magnus Archives, uh, I was not a vegetarian, but I am now. <laughs> I've I've heard that from uh, a few folk. It always makes me feel a bit bad because I'm still not a vegetarian. Uh, I probably should get around to it. Um, <laughs> but uh, but but yeah, uh, that's yeah. Uh, the the flesh I think is is one where I've always had a lot of fun finding those core images. And yeah, that is one of the topics where I'm like, I mean, I've I've got I've just got a real soft spot for grotesque body horror, to be honest, because uh, that very much uh, occupies a, p- a specific overlap uh, between the creepy and disgust that uh, just resonates with me. Um, I think I, I have a lower threshold for body horror because I don't know if you've seen it floating around, but there's someone who took uh, the primal fears from uh, the Magnus archives and took Furby pictures of them. Uh, have you seen that? Oh, God, no, I have seen those. I have seen those. <laughs> I, I really enjoyed them. <laughs> Uh, and enjoyed them in a very much like it terrifies me in a different way mm. yeah no it's good stuff uh, well i guess uh before we get too far off of track uh since so much of your writing takes the form of these interconnected stories that can kind of stand on their own but also work together to create something bigger how do you go about approaching that it seems like there's a balance you need to find between making each story somewhat distinct on its own and then also telling that you know capital big picture story mm, no absolutely i think um uh, to a certain degree it's something you get a, a sense for the more you write but i think it's important to have uh sort of a, a skeleton uh of it outlined at the beginning and like to know roughly where your connections are going to be it's it's interesting i think uh the contrast between uh the magnus archives and 13 stories because 13 stories was written as much more of a whole i sort of laid out all the connections quite early uh i had certain characters that i'd effectively designated as linchpins uh, that I knew were going to uh, appear in quite a lot of other chapters, people like Yannick the Plumber, uh, and other ones that were, I was like, these aren't going to be perspective characters, but they are. They have their own story, which will be like, revealed through these like four chapters uh, as a sort of side thing. But because it's all a whole, it was something that could develop and I could go back right to the start. You know, if certain characters... As you write them, you're like, oh, these characters, they're narratively speaking, they're actually friends. They work very well together. So I'll go back to this earlier chapter and add in um, add in some more so that that is a, a stronger connection. Um, and, you know, uh, Rachel, my editor, come back and say, oh, we need more Damien in chapter six, for instance. Uh, and I can go back to chapter six and write it. Whereas with the Magnus archives, it was much more of a, you know, in the early part it was making sure that I left enough hooks that I could later connect to. It would be like, well, who did this? Well, it's a mystery. And then somewhere in, in season two, there's a new villain. I'm like, ah, that new villain is the one who did this sinister thing in uh, episode 11 uh, or whatever. And it, it's interesting because if, if like when I listen through, I can hear, especially in season one, so many unconnected hooks so many things that i was just dropping out in case i needed them later and that ultimately didn't end up connecting into anything because i didn't i uh, didn't need them uh, to draw i didn't need to draw those uh, those lines but i actually also really like that effect because i think it, it makes a world feel bigger and yeah as you go through the magnus archives you can see us starting there's a certain tipping point where we stop probably around season three where we stop laying new hooks and start trying to tie together the ones that we've already connected and form them into something like properly cohesive and solid and while we knew the overall structure like we knew where it was headed we knew the 
big ticket events in the plot. A lot of the details and a lot of the world and a lot of the characters were fleshed out and connected and uh, sort of woven together as we went along, which is like while it creates similar effect at the end, it was, it was actually a very different method, I think, to how it worked with 13 stories. But at the same time, I, I think the experience of doing that with Magnus put me in a, a very good position to do it with 13 stories. There's also the fact that you've got to be aware of the meta pacing, if that makes sense. So you'll notice that as the chapters go on in 13 stories, the sort of the time to spook, the the time between the chapter starting and you hit the you hit the haunting gets shorter and shorter and shorter because in addition to to being careful with the tempo and the rhythm of the within the individual stories you've got to be aware of the overall rhythm of the book and as it approaches the um, as it approaches the, the last chapter as it approaches the climax the individual chapters need to get not necessarily faster but they need to they need the temperature needs to gradually turn up which is Sometimes a tricky thing to balance with the fact that each chapter you kind of need to reset to zero, you kind of need to bring it back down to introduce the character, but that is also something that can be balanced with the fact that since you've interconnected it, you have the opportunity to uh, introduce characters before. So when you get to Damien's chapter, for instance, uh, which I believe is the penultimate one, he's already been introduced enough in earlier chapters that you're kind of going in with at least some idea of who he is, which means that you can go pretty much straight into his haunting and what he's engaging with uh, very, very much off the bat. To get a little bit meta about your work, one of the creepiest linchpins in the Magnus archives, for me at least, was the Leitner books, where anyone who read them could access this great power, but, you know, at a terrible cost. So on that note, if 13 stories were a Leitner book... What effect do you think it would have on the reader? Oh, what a good question. Um, it would definitely be connected to... I think doors would start appearing in your home. So, okay, so you'd read the first chapter, and you'd be, or, or the prologue, uh, and there'd be a new door in your home. And you'd be like, oh, it's a new door. And you'd go in, and it would be like a really luxurious sort of uh, corridor uh, in... Uh, a high rise uh, and you'd try the door behind you and it'd be locked now and uh, essentially new doors would only appear the next chapter would appear you'd you'd read it a new door would go and gradually as you work through it you know the 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 building you're in gets more and more dilapidated uh, more and more unsettling you start to hear noises behind all the apartment doors uh, and ultimately, oh, and you're going up. So you're also going up. Uh, it's not just doors. It's it's uh, each door leads to a staircase. Sorry, forgot about the stories aspect. So you've got to be going up until finally the thirteenth story, the thirteenth floor. Well, I mean, the thirteenth floor. If it's a lightner, so it's in the Magnus archives, which is fundamentally a pretty bleak, a pretty bleak universe. Uh, you would probably end up being killed by a billionaire rather than the other way round. Because you know the Magnus archives is a is a is a the Magnus Magnusverse is a, is a is a dark place, and if you're in a lightner, you're you're gonna you're gonna meet a bad end. Yeah, it kind of a little bit fundamentally different tone overall to thirteen stories. Yeah, I think yeah, I I I think so. Um, well, I, I guess kind of looking forward a bit, I know you mostly avoid diving into fan discussion of the Magnus Archives uh, to avoid it kind of influencing you. But now that the end is fast approaching, do you think you'll change that policy once the story is complete? It's tricky. Uh, I think I think I will probably have to wait some time until after the, uh, the, the Magnus Archives is, is complete because, I mean, A... Even after the text is complete, I still don't think it's my place to go in and sort of interfere or retcon or like you know, you, you look at how uh, like even aside from the gross fucking transphobia stuff, you look at how like J.K. Rowling has like constantly tried to tinker with the Harry Potter universe after it's finished, mm. and you're like, oh god, and you know, I I I'm very much of the once it's done the text will stand on its own sort of mindset. Uh, and to be honest, from a, a practical point of view, like the Magnus fandom has grown to 
such a degree that like any large fandom there are sections of it that are kind of a powder keg and like fundamentally there are so many areas where like any comment i make is just going to be me clumsily blundering into like deep fan discussion and discourse and drama that's been going on for like you know over a year now or, or like you know however long I feel like once the story is complete, I might make it less of a like an official policy to avoid all fan spaces. But I think I'm going to try to remain thoughtful and considered in terms of the how I interact with uh, fandom, because fundamentally, as, as a creator, you wield a huge amount of power that it's much easier to accidentally use destructively than constructively. Mm, yeah, I think that's that's a very fair policy, especially considering sort of the few memorable examples in the opposite direction. Yeah, very much so. Well, uh, since the Magnus Archives has played such a significant role in your life for quite a few years now, do you have any plans for what you'll do once it's over? Uh, any other podcast ideas you might want to explore? I think I will probably... I mean, I, uh, I'm always open to voice actor work and you know, anyone who's got a podcast, uh, you know, hit me up. But I think it's probably going to be a while before I go back to podcasts as a medium for writing, largely because I, I mean, I, I love exploring new mediums. Fundamentally, I love engaging with uh, a medium and trying to figure out how best to turn it to horror. And I feel like the Magnus Archives is. It feels like the best i can do in the podcast space at this moment like that is like that idea of like the tape recorder of the lone voice talking their experience uh into it is something that i think needed to be a podcast and it may be that like some years down the line i'm like i've got another great idea and i think it needs to be a podcast but i'm not specifically wed to podcasting as a format and I think I'm keen to explore other mediums, other uh, other avenues at the moment. So, obviously, I'm uh, Thirteen Stories is the first book. There will be uh, there will be others, not in a series necessarily. I think I'm going to be trying standalone novels for a while, but there will definitely be uh, be more books. I work on uh, tabletop games, mostly role-playing games, uh, with my partner uh, under the name MacGuffin and Company, uh, and that's that's a, a meeting that I'm really really enjoying at the moment. And you know, there are I I can't necessarily say much more, but there are definitely other projects on the horizon that I am very excited to uh, to dive into and experiment with more. So yeah, there's definitely a lot more coming for now. It's uh, what I can talk about is books and uh, tabletop games, but, you know, watch this space. Yeah, good to hear. I think a lot of people will be happy to hear that. Um, and it sounds like you're definitely storyteller first and then medium kind of comes second. Yeah, I think that's uh, I think that's absolutely, absolutely the case. Uh, like storytelling and writing are very close to me, but I... I I can't say I've ever found a medium that I am that I, I feel is like oh this is this is the medium in which I work. Uh, I'm much more interested in in just sort of probing different formats and, and seeing how they work. Yeah, well, I'm excited to see what the future holds. Then, um, I guess looking back a little bit, are there any good games, books, podcasts, or any other media that you've enjoyed lately? Um, oh, I've been getting. Um... Uh, I've recently been getting, this is going to sound weird to say, but I've recently been getting back into horror movies, uh, like for some reason, like I, I, I kind of have phases of engaging with different sort of things. Like, so uh, a couple of years ago, I was massively into to video games and, and horror video games for a while. And then recently I, I've gotten back into horror movies. Uh, and so, like, I've got a Shudder subscription, um, and uh, me, and, me and some friends have periodically just been—I've—I've uh, I've been kind of trying to catch up on all the really good ones that, that I've missed uh, over the last uh, sort of decade or so. Uh, I think the one I've—I've I've seen. Oh, I had a psychedelic Nick Cage night recently, where we watched *Color Out of Space*, followed by *Mandy*, uh, which was like—it was an intense night, but. 
a very good one. Um, so, like, I'd probably say look up look up trigger warnings for Mandy though, because uh, that that goes some weird places. Yeah, uh, definitely. I, I've heard good things about Shutter. Uh, I have a hit or miss relationship with a lot of horror films, so I might uh, be looking up a lot of things beforehand. Oh, you know, absolutely. Like it's it's. Uh, I I, th- I think film is a uh, like that. I think we're going through a little bit of a renaissance in horror films over the last sort of 10 years, but like certainly the nineties and early noughties were a bit of a wasteland uh, just because I think a lot of studios were like, Oh, this is something we can make dead cheap. That'll definitely make money. uh, And didn't really put much thought into the, into the quality. I mean, as long as there's at least 50 or so jump scares, right? That's a quality Uh horror film. Yep. (laughs) Yep. Not against a jump scare, but you got to earn it. Yeah, yeah. Earn jump scare is definitely a thing. Well, one way I kind of always like to close out these interviews is just asking you, what is something that you happen to be excited about right now? You know what? Christmas. It's it's on the horizon, and I, I'm actually... I've realized in the last few years, I'm a big Christmas guy. Um, and, like... I know it's I know it's pandemic and it's lockdown and like I can't go home to see family but you know it's I'm gonna do my best and I'm legitimately excited about it. Yeah, I I think I'm starting to come around to be a Christmas guy as well. I'm looking forward to it. It'll be a different shape of Christmas this year. Yeah. Um. Well, Johnny, thank you for your time. Uh, this has been a great chat. Been a real pleasure to be here. You can find Jonathan Sims on Twitter as Johnny Waistcoat, on YouTube as Jonathan Sims, or at his website, jonathan-sims.com. I thought I wasn't a fan of horror until I found the Magnus Archives, and 13 Stories is one of two horror books I genuinely loved. And if you don't think Vanicula counts, well, bite me. As always, you can find us over at thefantasyin.com or click the invite in the show notes to join our Discord server, where you can hang out with us in real time and find more books than you'll ever be able to read. If you enjoyed this interview, consider supporting us on Patreon, or take a minute of your time to leave us a review online. It really means the world. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you can catch all of our future episodes. That's all for this week. Until next time. Statement ends.